The Guardian. The joy of ebooks is that great stories are just a click away. For our podcast listeners, we have a great offer on Luke Harding's book Mafia State, a menacing tale of life as a journalist in present-day Russia. I'll tell you more at the end of the show. Hello, this is Media Talk from The Guardian. This week, who knew what and when, and what did they do about it? The crisis engulfing the BBC over Jimmy Savile. What's going on at the FT? Will the business bible end up on the auction block? We'll talk Paralympics in Rio, Gordon Ramsay in Bermondsey, and what's going to happen in the new series of the intelligence drama Homeland. Vicky Frost knows, but if she tells you, she'll have to kill you. That's all to come on Media Talk. And joining me this week is one half of the Sony Award-winning podcast Answer Me This. It's Helen Zaltzman. Hello. Also here, and also no stranger to a Sony or two, he's the managing director of the content company Something Else. It's Steve Ackerman. Thanks for coming, both of you. And um, we'll get on to the serious news in just a moment. But what have you both learnt this week? Helen, start with you. <laughs> well, uh, I haven't left the house until today, this week, uh, so I've learnt a lot about what uh, well, my own living room looks like. Yeah, apparently you go down two flights of stairs and then the outside is right there. It's amazing. It was there the whole time and it just came to you today, zing, yeah. and suddenly you knew. Yeah, and it's thrilling, because they've just reopened the original Victorian station in Crystal Palace, where I live with the uh, vaulted ceilings and stuff. That, there's a bit of excitement in leaving. I suppose you can stay at home for most for most of what you do. You yeah. do at home anyway. Exactly. We have a home studio, I've been at home editing, self-employment. You don't need to leave the house ever. It's great if you're agri which I'm not yet, but uh, I could consider you it. You get in there. Yeah, okay. You have time. You can develop that. Thank you. Steve, have what have you learned? Well, well, um, uh, follow me through on this shameless plug. I've, I, we've just released a 606 uh, football toilet book, as Helen and I were just talking about. But I've learned I'm the ideal customer for my own book because I had Amazon actually sending me one of those emails this week that said, you might like this, and it was the book we're selling. So uh, <laughs> there we go. Maybe, I'm, maybe, maybe the book's just been created with me in mind. Did it seem at all appealing? Uh, well, I am a football fan, so I suppose so, yeah. Have well, you read it yet? I've read elements of it. My children have read, have read it cover to cover. They, they think it's hysterical, so maybe that's where it's pitched. So I can quiz you now on page 374. Well, you can quiz me on, uh, I mean, it is basically a book of football list, so you can quiz me on, you know, top pies or top stadiums. Or I'll probably get the answer wrong, actually, but it's... Uh, let's not go into that world of fo- football trivia. It's not a pleasant place to be. <laughs> <laughs> and I can quiz you, and if the answer's wrong, I wouldn't even know, so you'd get away <laughs> with it. You could say anything. You could well, say, yes, they played excellently at the Parthenon, and I wouldn't know anything. <laughs> well, all I've learned this week is that you don't have to speak for an hour without pause or without notes, but it does help. Well, the biggest story of the week has taken 30 years to break. But why? There are two elements to the Jimmy Savile scandal. One, that BBC people suspected that the star was involved in abuse, but did little about it. Two that when Newsnight reporters compiled a 10-minute report revealing the allegations, the project was shelved. Reasons unknown. Earlier I spoke to The Guardian's head of media and technology, Dan Sabah. This is what he had to say. Clearly the BBC didn't have any kind of system at the time because w- what you've heard is some testimony of many of these women is that abuse took place you know, in his dressing room or, or sort of while he was fi- in the margins of filming one of his programmes, Top of the Pops or, or Clank Click, I think one of the... One of the women told the ITV programme about sort of, constantly these sort of quick fumbles. They sort of go and grab you and then and then carry on down the corridor as if nothing had happened. And of course there was the producer who came into the dressing room and saw what looked like a, an episode of abuse um, going on. And, and there was a male producer who worked with him who said, I just felt scared of him. So presumably there was no mechanism that would have protected them and made them feel safe to come forward and report what they had seen. Well, I think that's right. And I th- look, the, the stars hold so much power in this equation and you, you 
see that in other ways in television and radio again and again but Jimmy Savile was a big star and he would have absolutely held the power over those junior producers who might have been who knows what on short-term contracts or what have you so so I think it would be easy for people to kind of dismiss what they saw or or, or play it down or just frankly prefer to forget about it let's bring it closer to present day because of course we got to the point where Newsnight became involved how did they become involved well, Jimmy Savile died, I think, in October of last year, aged 84, and uh, there was obviously a sort of moment of national grief, if you will. And then Newsnight got interested and started doing some work in the November. And very quickly, they got together sort of 10 interviews with either witnesses or victims. One victim was on the record, I think one witness was on the record, and the rest were sort of anonymised, because people are still very scared. And as this was sort of being prepared, the BBC announced a big Christmas time tribute. And suddenly, the corporation had this sort of problem, is a hero or pervert? And it seemed that they were going for hero. And so when Newsnight team carried on for a bit, and, and, and they had a film pretty much got together. It was a script, which really means you're close to the finishing line, about a 10 or 12 minute film. And they even had a date for broadcast in mid-December, a couple of weeks before the Christmas time tribute. And at that point on the accounts we have at that point the editor of Newsnight Peter Ripp had started to escalate the hurdles for broadcast and the first thing he said was well can you show that there's a police that the police investigated this and they could sorry police had indeed investigated this in fact they had questioned Savile and we didn't know this until this week questioned Savile under caution following an allegation in 2007 and nothing further came of it because they passed it to the CPS and the CPS said not enough to go on or well insufficient evidence is how the prosecutors like to talk and so then Ripon apparently asked the production team to go and find um, find out why the CPS did this. Was it because um, Savile was too old, which was a suspicion that was around, I think, some of the victims, is too old to be worth prosecuting? And the CPS is a serious organisation and declined to provide such a level of comfort off the record and said simply, once again, insufficient evidence. And that was used as a justification for killing the film that would be due to air. And what's really interesting, and I really don't have a good answer to this, is not only did it kill it at that date, it killed it for good. And I don't know why, if you thought that the case hadn't been made editorially, and that's what Peter Rippon has subsequently said, then why not give the team another month or six weeks? This is serious stuff. This is child abuse. It involves a high-profile name, happens to be a BBC name. BBC News is pretty, can be pretty fairly independent most of the time. But on this occasion, the whole thing died. And it left a really bad feeling that sort of still, you know, months later, still at the corporation and, and really real unhappiness, even, you know, this week has really sort of come out of the corporation and we've heard about it. And that's a bit that the public will struggle with, because the public will think either the BBC knows or it doesn't. They'll see it as a corporate entity. But of course, it's more compartmentalised than that, isn't it? Well, of course it is, but, the, you know, the, look, every organisation is much more complex under the covers. But we had Carol Wells, who says she was a victim of Savile, and she spoke to us, The Guardian, earlier this week. She went to Newsnight, first of all. I think she was anonymous. She wasn't prepared to go on the record at that point. And she said, she told us how disappointed she was with Newsnight, and she lumped Newsnight and the BBC with the kind of state, which is, you know, you finally pluck up the courage to go and tell people what happened, and then you're ignored. And that is really unfortunate place for the people to be on this issue. Dan Sabber there, and Helen, this is unremittingly awful, isn't it? The more, the more you hear, the worse it gets, and it, 
It doesn't look like this story is going away anytime soon. Four police forces involved now. Almost 70 victims have come forward. It's amazing it's taken this long to come out, isn't it? Well, you're right. Uh, because I've heard a lot of people saying, well, you know, people were too afraid of his star power to say anything earlier. But when was he last really that powerful? I mean, the 90s? So there was a decade in which he was still alive, in which things could have been done. Then other people said, well, he said that if anyone pursued a complaint, then he would stop doing his charity work, which he earned over £40 million, I think, for charities. But again, that he'd largely stopped doing that in the last few years of his life. So you do think, why now? Because a lot of people have been living with this for 30, 40 years. They don't have the prospect of justice now. It's just unremittingly sad. And he's not alive to, to give his side of the story either. And maybe there's an explanation, whether you believe it or not is uh, another thing, but there's an explanation as to why the BBC didn't uh, do a proper job with this. But uh, one can't understand why the rest of the media didn't. I mean, this is what the news of the world was there for, wasn't it? Well, during its life, it, it was supposed to uh, reveal such as this. And it's just amazing that the media overall seems to have failed here. Yeah, well, that's when everyone marched in saying, oh, well, child abuse didn't exist in the 70s, which, again, doesn't really make you feel any better about any of it. Steve, it fell to ITV in the end. They did a good job, didn't they? Well, it, it, it's uh, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, it's obviously commendable with ITV that uh, that it fell to them to reveal this. I think, I think the you know the point you just made about why hasn't this story come out? I think there's something a, a little bit unsavoury about the fact that, frankly, it was one of the worst kept secrets in in media. Um, you know, there were plenty of people who knew about that, and I suppose you know, you, you know, you look around and feel actually. There's, there's plenty of people who are compliant in the fact that this didn't really get out. And, and maybe some of that is to do with with that classic element of abuse as well, where victims don't know there's other victims. Yeah. And, and so, unfortunately, that element of bravery to come forward is obviously made easier when there's other mm. people also revealing the same story. And when you're no longer 14 or 15, because traditionally that is a time when people don't take you very seriously anyway. Indeed. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think, you know, I think... I wonder if if the other thing wrapped up in this is I mean I mean clearly there's there's a conservatism that's reared its head in the BBC in terms of can we air this story and and, and whatever reasons maybe about that I just wonder if one side element is maybe an overthrow from Leveson in terms of the nervousness of exposés and of attacking celebrity you know in the past twelve months we all know there's plenty of newspapers who've backtracked from that and and, and maybe the BBC was caught up within that sort of atmosphere as well to a degree. They have taken a strange position though, because the editor of Newsnight said that he hadn't found that they hadn't proven to him any official malfeasance, if you were, that he wasn't able, they weren't able to prove that any of the institutions um, had failed. But if all they'd revealed was what Savile himself was doing, that itself was a story, wasn't it, Helen? Maybe they just did not want that dirt on their own doorstep at the time, particularly when he was alive. Maybe it was just altogether too much trouble. They thought maybe the Louis Theroux thing in 2002 was more, than, more of a headache than they actually wanted, and they thought, no, I'll just put it away. All right, well, let's talk about what will happen next, because uh, Paul Farrelly is an MP, he's a former journalist, he's also a member of the House of Commons Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee. I spoke to him earlier, and he said the BBC must prepare to account for itself in Parliament. What we really need to find out from the BBC is who knew what and when. It's really important that the BBC fully investigate this. I think we should uh, also await uh, any police investigations. Is finding out who knew what and when not a matter for the BBC itself? Well, it is uh, absolutely for, for the BBC. It's the seriousness of the allegations that really mean that the BBC has got to be quite clear as well over what it meant by editorial reasons for dropping the story. There's a danger now that uh, 
people will use this to beat the BBC in general. There are plenty of enemies of the BBC, from Rupert Murdoch to, to the Daily Mail, and so it's really important, doubly important, the BBC is open, transparent and extremely thorough. This is obviously a story that uh, the public has become very interested in. Do you think that the Select Committee would be a good forum to have those questions answered in? Well, we, we see the BBC all the time. Uh, we talk to their, their chairman and, the, and their executives, and I'm sure this, this will come up next time we see them. But I think it's really important not to have a, a knee-jerk reaction uh, uh, to this and to let the BBC uh, investigate thoroughly and indeed in cooperation with the police. In the documentary that Louis Theroux made, he, of course, put some of these allegations in a, uh, an oblique form, but he put it to, to Jimmy Savile that people were saying these things. So to some extent, it was known within the BBC. They broadcast that, and yet after his death, they ran a tribute programme to him. Now, you're a journalist. Uh, do, do you think that the explanations that we're getting um, from Peter Rippon's blog and from the BBC generally, does it seem to stack up? I was a journalist, and, uh, and journalists... Uh should ask questions. The BBC is full of journalists at the highest level, and, and those questions about what were the editorial reasons that uh, Peter Rippon uh, refers to, whether they, they do stack up, and whether there was evidence that really deserved an airing. And are you happy to leave this in just until the next scheduled appearance, or is it something that maybe you think should be brought forward? Well, there's a great danger in knee-jerk reactions. I wouldn't want to give such a reaction simply as another angle and headline on a story. I think we just need to watch and wait and see, and I hope the BBC is going to be thorough, open and transparent. Okay, let's move on to other media stories of the week. The Financial Times has been valued at $1 billion, according to City analysts. Citigroup decided that Pearson's FT Group, which includes the Financial Times and a 50% stake in the Economist Group, could achieve the price if the new chief executive, John Fallon, pursues an aggressive sale. Crucially, Fallon has not so far ruled out that possibility. Helen... I thought print was dying, but the FT seems to be doing quite well. Why do you think that is? Because it's three quid a copy. <laughs> what do you mean? Uh, reassuringly expensive? I think just, uh, well, you're going to make more profit out of it if it's costing that much. And it's because I think it fills a particular niche. It doesn't try to be so much of a general paper. It knows what it is. And its problem will come once all the people who've been buying the FT for 30 years die. So maybe it'll, maybe it'll last longer, but maybe they're looking ahead and thinking... I don't want this problem, let's get the money now. Their, it, their website is very much playing on their heritage as well with the pink background. But is it like that? I mean, you know, the Express had a problem with uh, not being able to sell because its readers were dying and the Telegraph mm. were pretty uh, worried about that a little while back. But I'm not sure about the FT because aren't there always younger traders and younger people coming through who want need to take the FT? I suppose so, or buy its iPad app. Yeah, maybe the print version. Steve, is that, are you a subscriber? No, I'm not. But the uh, you know the classic thing about the FT is it's uh, quality, not quantity. You know the sort of people they attract to their website, to the way they attract themselves in the digital landscape, and to the newspaper are you know top ABC ones, as your uh, advertising agencies would say, and they spend a lot of money and they have a lot of money, and that's why the FT is is a valuable property. And actually, unlike many of the papers, the FT has been very good at translating people away from the print copy. I mean, they've been very successful mm. on that front. Mm. Uh, I mean, you know, 
you did say it, Helen. Working they, as well, isn't yeah, it? I mean, the paper's working, but obviously they do have a niche product, and therefore there is an incentive for people to pay for that. They 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 have access to fantastic information that people who earn a lot of money need to get to. So you know, they are something that's worth a lot of money. But the other thing that's obviously about them is the actual brand itself. You know, there's not many media brands. Wall Street Journal obviously being one of the few others that really are sort of jewels in the crown and, yeah. and that yeah. I think trophy hunters would love to have. And, and I think there was a, an article in The Guardian today that, that made the same parallel. If you're a, a rich Arab, would you rather buy Chelsea or the FT? And actually, the FT is, is, you know, a fantastic thing to have in your collection of companies or media outlets or football clubs. Well, the Chelsea aren't doing too bad. They aren't doing too too bad, but then they've got John Terry, you see, so that sullies the brand. Oh, let's not go. You haven't got that with the FT. No, it's not being classy, isn't it? The The, FT, always. And also, the paywall has been working out really well for them, I think. And again, it's because it's this high-quality product with a very specific brand identity, and therefore people know that it's worth paying for if they're interested in that because they're going to get information and commentary that they won't get for free elsewhere, which is harder when it's a broader spectrum paper. Okay, well, staying with companies that are doing well and turn to television. Channel 4 is preparing a bid for the Rio Paralympics. Chief Executive David Abraham hopes that the star of this year's coverage, Claire Balding, will be available again. Um, Steve, the BBC almost mourning the fact that they didn't get it last time round and uh, wanting to put a stronger bid in this time. Do you think they'll, uh, they'll let it go again? I'm sure the BBC will go for it in a fairly heavy way. This is classic public service broadcasting. It was fantastic what Channel 4 did, and obviously Channel 4 are going to fight to hold on to that as much as possible. I think if I was the BBC, I'd be looking at the Paralympics and thinking it was a real missed opportunity. And I don't think, to be fair to them, anyone could quite anticipate that uh, this year the Paralympics would grow again the way it has done now for a number of uh, years but that you know it really was a huge event in its in its own right as well as a sort of sister companion event to the Olympics it's only going to carry on growing we're already hearing NBC starting to say actually they are re-evaluating what they did as well yeah. and, that, and, that, and that they'll be looking at providing better coverage going forward so yeah the BBC should go for it but actually because of what Channel 4 did this time around I would really hope that they'd be able to hold, hold on to it. Helen talk about that was there any, did it gain from being on Channel 4 this time? Channel 4 did some very good plugging I didn't watch all that much of the Paralympics, if I'm entirely honest, because I have a limited interest in sport and I'd pretty much expended all of it on the Olympics. But it seemed like Channel 4 learned a lot in the process of that. And I certainly think they did a really good job in selling it in the billboards and making people think it was an interesting thing to watch before it had even begun. Will it be that popular again? Was it Uh, so popular this time, 11.2 million peak audience, because it was London? Well, home games was an important element, but I think equally... Don't forget, you're going into the next Olympics and Paralympics with that whole Team GB ethos in the sense of everybody wants to support a winning team. We've got fantastic athletes now. The money is still coming from the government to support them. Historically, countries who have a home games and then you know the, the, the subsequent games, their performance always dips. So Team GB, already the predictions are, are that, and the Paralympics team, that they won't do as well, but they are going to win a lot of medals still. And therefore, people are going to want to watch that. You know, Everybody loves supporting a winner. Rio is only four hours behind Britain and therefore the coverage will uh, quite easily slot into people's evening viewing. Whereas Beijing, that's what, about seven or eight hours ahead? Inconvenient. Well, because this thing isn't just thrown together, we can talk about now about how we might watch it. Because uh, this week, Ofcom announced that 4G will be available on multiple mobile networks by the end of next summer, following deals by Vodafone and O2 to work together and share network space. And if you're not sure what 4G is, I can tell you it's one better than 3G. 
everything is faster and better and um, f- faster and better. Steve, should I be excited? It's faster and better. Um, <laughs> is it better and faster then? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I mean, on a serious note, the, the one uh, uh, I think thing to bear in mind about this is speed is at the essence of what brings alive the multimedia and the internet experience for us. And don't forget, you know, when the internet first launched and WAP first launched at the start of the decade, the mentality behind lots of the websites that went on to fill was entirely right. They were retail websites and they said our, our retail experience is going to be different. What they were missing out on was the fact that the experience on the phone wasn't fast enough and therefore you couldn't rely on it. So as this experience gets better and better, therefore our retail experience and everything else we can do with the internet improves. And clearly there's a few areas that where well, that's really pertinent. First of all, the growth of internet consumption starts to shift away from the home and much more onto the mobile device. It's about because, 40% now, isn't it? Yeah, and it's going to keep on, it's going to keep on growing and that obviously is consistent with what we see with other countries where mobile has developed at a faster rate than broadband places such as India. The other thing is our consumption of things like like video. Uh, that's only going to carry on increasing as the speeds increase and the capacity for what um, for what can be carried. So that starts to change the landscape quite quickly because uh, websites start to become less static, video starts to become more important than text, and so we start to see, again, a redefinition of how we consume. Helen, I know you didn't leave home, but uh, when you heard <laughs> this news, you must have been tempted. I jumped in the air. Um, I like to be a late adopter of uh, things so that uh, they can work out their problems. So we and, take the risk. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and then I just uh, backpedal when uh, everyone else has dealt with it. Um, I think what it will give um, the mobile providers is a new thing to scrap over because for the last few years, it's just being able to offer iPhones cheaper than another provider. So that's a new spin, but... It doesn't sound like it's going to be earth-shattering. It sounds more like a, just a steady development. But you're, 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 what you do depends on technology to some extent, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah exactly. Exciting. If it allows people to uh, download podcasts much quicker and easier, then uh, hooray. Wonderful. Bring it on. Steve, persuade her. She doesn't seem very... Uh, well, it's not happening until next this. summer, is it? I can't get excited now. Wait. I'll peak too early. <laughs> That's a lot of days at home yeah. waiting. Uh, well, uh, final word to the unusually named Gitfinger. Uh, who writes in with a comment. He says, when we get 4G, people will be able to burn their way through their 500 megabyte data cap in minutes. Mobile data, too slow, too expensive, too unreliable. Given our experience of 3G, I can't see any of that changing. Now, there's an optimist, Steve. Well, come on. Uh, what can I say? Get with the uh, get, with, get with the program. Get with the program. Get with our program. Get with our program. Definitely. Yeah. Get with Helen's program. <laughs> Download them all. <laughs> You've got the bandwidth. Yeah. Obviously, talk plans are probably going to become more expensive uh, until everyone's got four G, and then they all have to compete with each other. But specifically for the for the, your content provider, what does it actually mean for you? Well, I think the video element is is really important. Um, actually, and I, and I think on the pricing thing, it's not quite, I'm not quite sure it's quite true that that then means the pricing plan starts to, to get more expensive oh, because, because don't forget we've got uh, a huge explosion of tablets coming into the market as well. That's an upsell for Vodafone and O2 and those guys. So, so that ability. On the content side, uh, I think it's consistent with what we're going to start seeing with connected TVs as well, which is uh, obviously the ability for us to start merging media and consume media in a much more combined way. So screen and social media or screen and text at, at the same time well you've got me excited and i will try it out and helen i'll tell you how i get thank on thank you all right but for now thank you both helen you. and steve cheers okay time for tv with vicky frost vicky how you doing hello i'm fine thank you well, i say i've stayed in a few hotels in my time city center hilton's travel lodges country house jobbies with mock tudor beams but never anything quite like channel 4's hotel gb would you spend the night there 
Well, I was about to say, not if they paid me. But in fact, <laughs> you have to pay them. Uh, unbelievably, no. I think this was sort of, I heard, you know, the hotel, I think we've talked about Hotel GB before when they first announced the idea. And I was quite intrigued by it because I don't think it was an idea that was without potential. I thought there was an idea there. But unfortunately, there were also about 4,000 other ideas there. <laughs> and that is kind of the problem with it. You know, we've seen, it's this very strange programme which seems to be a soup of a thousand different formats. You know, it's kind of Hell's Kitchen uh, plus four in a bed plus Jamie's Kitchen. But, you know, just plus everything ever and every bit of talent ever just for a week. It's just bizarre, actually. And they just don't seem to have any idea of what this actually is. Are we following celebrities? Are we trying to get unemployed people jobs? Are we looking at the guests (laughs) who are in that penthouse, like being really drunk and outrageous what are we looking at it's just it's so strange and it's particularly strange I think coming from a channel that got rid of Big Brother to sort of slightly be trying to recreate it it's, it's really weird how did this happen was it just that they had a day when everyone came forward with their pitches and they just said let's have all of them well I don't know it does smack of desperation doesn't it it sort of smacks of what Channel 4 will say is they said, we realised we had all this great lifestyle talent and we really we really lead the way in lifestyle talent. And there is some truth in that. You know, like Mary Porter's is in fact just so watchable in pretty much everything. And she's quite watchable in this, I think. Perhaps the only person who is watchable in this. And so they say, well, we had all that talent, so we decided to bring it all together in one marvellous celebration. Uh, but the problem is that all that talent does not belong on screen together, particularly like with Phil being the maitre d'. Is that the mm-hmm. weirdest thing ever? or what and you know and suddenly Gokwan's running a bar and it, it just doesn't work it, it was sort of well I don't really know what it is I don't I mean but that's its problem nobody knows what it is and we're a few days in to when Helen. they announced it I assumed that they were going to make all of those people do jobs and we would get to watch them doing jobs badly and then when I watched it it was just them shouting at strangers which is what they do on their normal programs where's the mystique in that should have called it that would be a good title shouting at strangers <laughs> steve can you have too much talent in one project well it, well i mean i mean clearly clear or, or uh, unless maybe talent there's not enough talent there at all i mean I, I mean it just for me the, the sort of fundamental thing is it just seems to completely lack any element of narrative mm-hmm. and, and sort of character build and you know that was always the successful thing about the big reality shows was that character build that you got to know characters well we know these characters because we've 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 got to know them from other programs and it feels to me like the the whole apprentice element is something that's got sort of shoehorned in last minute to try and make it feel a little bit different and, and give it a sort of social purpose. And I just feel really disappointed because Channel 4, I think, in the past sort of 18, 24 months has done so much innovation, especially in terms of where first screen meets second screen, you know, million pound drop, um, one point every minute, some of those formats that, that, that have brought both of those screens together. And you think if this is going to be their really big thing... You know, none of that has happened. It feels like, it feels, you know, I said to Helen earlier, it feels like television going back 10 years. Yeah, well, I was going to say, it does, it does. It feels like you should have watched it five years ago, basically. It might have been a thing. And in fact, it very well might have been a Channel 4 thing. You know, it's kind of what you associate with old Channel 4, isn't it? Sort of that kind of stunty thing. But I mean, but but yes, it's, it's really bad. And I do think it's the thing that really suffers from is just not knowing who to follow and which is the important storyline here. And I don't think anybody involved in that project could even tell you that. You know, it just seems weird. Well, there's too much artifice as well, so it's just really hard to to care about any of those storylines, even if they did start to emerge. And virtually all of those people one has seen a little bit too much of in the last few years. Well, let's go to something that, that is, has been uh, indisputably good, Homeland. Um, at least the first series was brilliant, won the Emmy. Um, and the second one starts... 
on Sunday. Yeah, so it's, yeah, so we lose Hotel GB on Friday, and then Homeland starts on Sunday from one extreme from to the other. Ridic- on ridiculous four. to the sublime. Yeah, yes, exactly. Uh, yes, yeah, so Homeland returns on Sunday, and what is a really big weekend for television uh, this weekend? You know, Strictly goes live, X Factor goes live, and ITV have got t- uh, Take Me Out coming back. Merlin's back on BBC One. Homeland's back opposite Downton. You know, there's a viewing decision for you. Uh, I know which mine will be. I mean, I found the finale to the first series of Homeland, uh, when I say faintly frustrating, I mean extremely frustrating and a bit of a cop-out. Obviously, there's a bit of untangling to do from that situation, yeah. uh, which, uh, without you know, without any spoilers, I will say is also slightly frustrating when you're watching that on screen. But it does get straight back in there, really. You know, it's just off again, full pelt. And by the end of that first episode, uh, there's a lot of setting up in the first episode. But you're still, you know, by the end of the first episode, I was going, great, brilliant, can't wait to watch the next one. Which is exactly what Homeland should, you know, needs to do. Helen, will you be there? I think so, yes. I do like Homeland. To me, it's like a less silly version of 24. Um, But like Vicky, there are things about it I find frustrating. Like the fact that you know that Brody is pretty likely to be fine because he's a central character why would they kill him off when they probably want to get 10 series out of him and also his wife is very underdeveloped i mean she's just there to look pretty and topless but actually surely if you were the character in her situation you would have quite a lot to say about it steve this is supposed to have quite a big arc isn't it this uh, series can you see it lasting into several series well as helen said i think that seems to that was my slight frustration with some of these american shows that you love the first two or three series mm. And then they just sort of drain away a little bit because they don't know what to do because they're, they're trying done. to pull it out, you know. And and you know, as you were talking about a week or two ago, in terms of the killing, where it's three, it's, you know, the third series is coming, and then that is it. They've already said that's it. America has this problem where obviously commercial imperative seems to then drive the need to create series five, six, seven, and eight. Yeah, I don't, you know, I think we're probably not at that stage yet with Homeland, but I do think that is a worry with it. And there are a lot of loose ends that have to be tied up very quickly so we can get back to basically Brody and Carrie being on the same kind of page, on the, you know, on the same script, mm. basically, because, you know, if you consider where we left it, they're, you know, miles apart. So that has to happen all quite quickly. But, I mean, it's just a, really actually it's a joy to see Claire Danes back. I know some people found her, you know, a slightly wild-eyed sort of look I'm a bit mad sort of acting a bit infuriating but I think actually she's really great and it's really good to have her on screen on a Sunday night. Can I ask Vicky is is the second series now starting to go off on a life of its own because the first one came out of the Israeli format didn't it? Is the Israeli show still still going or? I don't think so actually I mean I'd I'm not entirely sure, but I think it stays as one that stayed as one series. Um, but I think there's quite a lot of distance between Homeland and the Israeli series in the first place. So I guess it's sort of taking it beyond there. But Homeland, in terms of the, the topics it seems to be covering this time, it, it does seem to be sort of taking those uh, issues it covered first time around and sort of running with them and developing. Well, here's the BBC answer, maybe. Um, Hunted, a series about private security and espionage. That's on BBC One Thursday nights. I I worry you may just have oversold it. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, this is sort of... I mean, this is, you know, this is is spooks, basically, in a new guise, in a posher, slicker, more American-friendly guise, from what I can gather. It is totally ludicrous. Right. And uh, there is a lot of cliche. And, um, you know, but I've seen the first episode and most sort of spy dramas like this 
are not that convincing to begin with, unless, say, you know, they are Smiley's people, for instance, you know, but a lot of sort of modern spy dramas, and there's there's a little bit, of, you can sort of see strike-back influences in there, and I'm sure it will do very well. It's quite glossy. It stars Melissa George with a quite annoying British accent, I found. Maybe other people will be less annoyed by that. And an array of beanie hats, which is a bit weird. And it's sort of, you know, it's a bit of a caper and you run around a lot and, you know, there's a baddie and, ooh, there's, you know, it's all quite moody. I'm sure it will do very well for BBC One. I sort of feel a bit like I'd rather have more spooks than have this. The accents, do the accents annoy you? She was saying that the Melissa George tries to do the, the British accent, doesn't quite get it, but the Brits are doing very good American accents, aren't they? Yeah, but she's Australian and usually they are incredible at accents, Australian actors, because they have to leave Australia to get jobs. But maybe the beanie hats is to make it a bit more like Homelands. I'm pretty sure Claire Danes wears quite a lot of beanie hats. Yeah. Hide secrets under them. Yeah, Melissa George is very kick-ass in this, so probably would even kick Carrie's ass, I think. You, you looking forward to that, Steve? Uh, well, I didn't like Spooks, so uh, after, after, after Vicky's review, I think I'm staying away. <laughs> From the sound of it, the person who should be hunted is the scriptwriter. That might be a bit harsh. I don't know. Oh, We've only seen maybe. one. These things are so, you know, there's so much setting up to do that maybe it will, you know, get better. OK, Vicky, thank you very much. I'll, and I'll be watching both, of course, disguised appropriately. But that's it for this week. My thanks to Steve Ackerman, Helen Zaltzman, Vicky Frost, Paul Farrelly and Dan Sabah. Media Talk will be back in just over a week on Monday the 15th of October with a special presented by The Guardian's women's editor, Jane Martinson. Till then, my name's Hugh Muir. The producer was Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio. For a limited period only, we have an exclusive ebook offer for Guardian podcast listeners. Guardian columnist Luke Harding's Mafia State is a dark and ominous insight into the life of a journalist in present-day Russia. We're offering 30% off the list price of 4.99. All you have to do is go to the ebook store www.kobo.com. That's kobo.com and at checkout put in the discount code Mafia State for your Guardian podcast offer.